Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Organ and Tissue Donation in partnership with Donate Life. I'm your host, Michael Billings, and today I'm joined by two guests with very different stories, but both have one thing in common. They're both currently on the organ transplant list, waiting on an organ. We'll get to their stories shortly, but before I get to that, I want to remind you that I do this podcast in the hope that after listening, you'll do two things. Sign up to be an organ donor at donatelife.gov.au and talk to your family about your desire to be an organ donor. Both those things are just as important as each other and just one organ or tissue donor can transform the lives of many people. I'll remind you at the end of the episode, but for now, here's my first guest, Andrew Conway. Andrew, where does the story start for you? I started back in 96, uh, Michael, when I got diagnosed with cardiomyopathy about five weeks after my wedding. Wow, <laughs> that is horrible timing. Tell us about how you were feeling that led you to go get checked out. Uh, what happened is I was... Um, I couldn't walk. I was losing my breath and everything, and um, I thought I was a bit unfit and a bit of a cold, but it turned out I um, was filling up with fluid. So I had to go and get tests done and get drained, and that was about it for that one. When you say you were filling up with fluid, what do you mean? Uh, Lungs were filling up with fluid. I had about eight litres of uh, fluid on the lungs, which is a classic heart disease um, symptom. Oh, God, that's horrible. must have felt like you were drowning. Uh, yeah, well, I almost did drown. That was what I was told after they uh, drained the fluid off me. Tell us a bit about what cardiomyopathy is. Well, what it is is um, where the heart, you get a disease in the heart and it um, damages the heart and it basically, it's more in my case, actually stretched the heart, went to about twice its normal size. And with the medication, it's come back to the normal size, but I've lost all the function in it because it's stretched, it stretched the muscle. So, yeah, basically just a heart failure is that is a broad term for the whole thing. And how do they treat it? Lots of medications. Um, In my instance, I had medications for years and they eventually stuck a pacemaker in to help the heart with its day-to-day life. Now, it's almost a decade later that they stick the pacemaker in. What led to that? Uh, My specialist at the time said he he did a lot of research and apparently it was a a good thing to help prolong the life of um, the people with a particular symptoms that I was showing. And do you notice a difference once you've had the pacemaker put in? Uh, no, because my heart was actually functioning pretty well, but it had the defib function in it, which was the um, which gives you the shock when your heart goes into a um, dangerous rhythm. That's a pretty amazing feature that they've put into pacemakers these days because you actually used that feature on it. The very next year is the first time you technically died. Yeah, spot on, yeah. Went away for the weekend and um, yeah, just passed out and woke up and thought that was weird and... Um, I was told a few days later that I actually had an arrest. You were obviously unconscious through the whole thing, but what were you doing when you had the arrest? Uh, we were actually down the beach, and I was just standing beside the car, and um, I thought it felt like I was going to pass out. So I laid in the car, and I passed out. And then when I come through it too, I thought that was a bit strange, and uh, went to bed for the day. And then um, the following Wednesday, I went to the hospital, and they told me what had happened. I had an arrest and actually died. So after that, is there recovery time? Do they change their approach to your condition? What happens next after you've been through something like that? Yeah, what they do, they just basically do a few tests, um, streamline your medications and um, try and find out what caused it, which they generally don't really know because it could be a number of factors. So that's just what happened with that one. Well, they must have got it reasonably right because you live with this condition for another 14 years before, again, you die in your sleep. Tell us about what happened the second time, because the second time is quite dramatic. Uh, that was the big one. I actually, um, it was last year I died in my sleep, uh, and the wife and daughter had to do CPR on me, and I was out for about, or dead for about half an hour. 
and they had to get the ambos and you know, all, all the emergency services come took me away. And I woke up a few days later in the Alfred. Now, I believe you were asleep at the time. How did they know you'd gone into cardiac arrest? Yeah, my defib was um, shocking the heart, but it wasn't working because my heart was so <clears throat> so damaged it wouldn't actually um, restart the heart. So it was just shocking me and I was jumping around in bed and the wife tried to wake me up and that was it. I was, I was non-responsive. So this thing shocked you, I believe, eight times before it essentially gives up and that's when your wife and daughter take over. Uh, they kicked in before it stopped trying to do its thing, but yeah, it was... Um, it goes off eight times. That's what it's set for. And if it doesn't get you going by then, that's the end of you, I think. So they just did CPR on me until the ambos arrived. That's absolutely amazing that you're still here just because your wife and daughter know CPR. Yeah, well, they're, um, they're, we all know CPR. We've all done the um, courses and stuff. So, And that was the wife's third time she's done CPR. So it was pretty good. She's out of practice. Wow. Is your wife a medical professional or just someone who's handy to have around? Uh, handy to be around. She's um, saved one, lost one, and well, she's saved two now because she saved me. So, Wow, that is really amazing. So after this incident, you actually get a device installed. Tell us about what an LVAD is. An LVAD's a left um, ventricular uh, assist device. That's its acronym. And it, um, they basically put a little impeller in your left ventricle, which um, pumps the blood around your body. And it's all controlled by a little... Um, controller box and some batteries that you've got to carry with you all the time. So that part's external to your body? Yeah, it's like a little um, about the size of a laptop bag you've got to carry with you all the time with a tube going in through your chest. And um, yeah, it's a good thing. It sounds like it, but it's a pretty extreme thing to get installed, I imagine. Well, yeah, it's a pretty a pretty serious thing. You've got to actually cut your heart open and install this little device inside your heart and then stitch it back up again. But I didn't have any other options, so... I, did, I had two options, but this was the only one where I survived, so <laughs> I put it in. I think you chose the right one there. At what point are you put on the transplant list? Uh, they put me on it in about August because you have to go and do um, transplant assessments where they basically test everything in your body, make sure you haven't got cancers or any other underlying diseases and that sort of thing. And then they um, give you a workup and then you just um, go on the list. So this is August 2020? Probably about August, yeah, July, August, I think it was. Now, since you've been put on the transplant list, you've actually had another arrest. Tell me about that incident. (laughs) Yeah, about, probably about a month ago now, I was just sitting there and um, my defib went off again. And again, it went off eight times. But seeing I had the LVAD machine, I didn't even know I'd had an arrest. So I went to the hospital and they found out my heart was running in um, VF, which is the um, rhythm that you don't want. I guess that leads me to, this interview is a little different to the other ones I've done for the podcast because you're currently waiting for a heart to come up. Where are you at at the moment? In general, I'm just um, a a little bit in limbo, but I'm I'm doing lots of stuff and spending a bit of time with the family and doing a lot of exercising and stuff. We go to the hospital three days a week for gym and things like that. So, yeah, I've got plenty to do. Early retirement. I guess that's a glass half full way of looking at it because at this point... You could get the phone call, in theory, after we've finished this interview. Oh, any any time, yeah. Any, any unknown number comes up, I get a bit excited about it. <laughs> That's got to be heartbreaking every time someone's calling just to tell you you haven't paid a bill or something. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's one of those. It's a, it's a bit of a bittersweet sort of thought, to be honest with you. But, you know, you know someone's had to die to give you a chance. But 
I think that's an important thing to have in the back of your mind. And when that call does come through, you're going to appreciate it so much more for it. I've got one more question to ask. And like I said, this is the first time I've asked someone who's currently on the waiting list. What would you say to someone who was thinking about or unsure about signing up to be an organ donor? Oh, that's a bit of a tough one. I suppose you've got to look at the big picture because there's a lot of cultural cultural things and personal opinions. But um, yeah, as I look at the big picture, because more of my family are donors. And um, as the doctors have all said, the person who's going to donate the organ is going to die anyway, whether they donate the organs or not. So I figure I'm to do some good with it than nothing better to your own personal choice, I suppose, because it's a bit of a devastating time too. So yeah, I can't, can't really, um, I'm not an expert on that one. Mate, you know more than most on the subject, so I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and telling us your story, and I really hope that I get to do a part two to this podcast, and we're talking to you another day when you've got that heart, so thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, cheers, Michael. Thank you. My next guest is Paul Greenwood, who is also currently on the transplant wait list, though he is waiting on a kidney. He joins me now. Paul, thank you for being on the podcast. Where does the story start for you? Uh, Really, probably about 13 years ago when I started to get... Uh, crook. I had shock and blood pressure and things like that. So we we sort of delved into the doctors and, and um, yeah, tried to figure out what was going on. And really, it took quite a while to figure out that, you know, I was, uh, my, my kidneys were scarred and, and that potentially they'd, they'd get worse and worse and worse to the point where I'd, I'd have to start dialysis. This must have come as quite a shock as at the time you weren't very old and you were very fit. Yeah, yeah, it just wasn't even on the radar. You just you just do your thing and you don't think anything's ever going to happen because you're young. And, um, yeah, it did. It was a shock. And, and even just to have high blood pressure, I, I couldn't quite figure out in my own mind why why that would happen, you know, when you're, you're riding lots on your, your push bike in and out of town and things like that. So, yeah, it did. It, it came as quite a big shock. So what did they put the scarring on your kidneys down to? At some stage, I just had a really bad infection. Um, maybe when I was like a kid or same thing, like when you're sort of early teens and things like that, you just don't, you get crook and push through the other side and you don't even think about it. So there's nothing that I can remember where I was really, really crook. But obviously at some stage, I've had a really bad like flu even and, and it's just my, my body's attacked my, my uh, kidneys and left me with scar tissue. So at this point, do they start treating your kidneys or start treating your blood pressure? Just the blood pressure. It was always a pretty basic, like there was never too many pills, like I'm on a massive amount of pills at the moment. But in the early stages, it was only a couple of pills. And um, yeah, as long as I took those and every year, they'd probably up the dosage a little bit as it got worse and worse. So this was 2008 when your blood pressure starts to increase. When does this escalate again to the point that something changes? Probably it would have been three years ago, I guess, that the the blood pressure was getting more and the uh, creatinine levels, so what your your kidneys uh, aren't filtering properly, uh, was getting higher and higher. So so I did, I, I probably got 10 years out of just being basically popping a few pills and, and being normal. And then up until two years ago when I, I just started dialysis, it was it just came around. So it seemed to come around very, very quickly. But, yeah, it started and, and uh, obviously felt better for it. 
Now, some people might not have met someone who's on dialysis. Describe your life before you started it and how your life looks while you're on dialysis. Yeah, life was pretty hassle-free in the sense that you were you just did your thing, you know, you got up, you went to work, you came home, you went out on weekends, you could drink as much as you like and eat whatever you liked. So yeah, and and we had a small child, so that was always a a busy a busy time as well. Yeah, now it's a little different. You you off to dialysis three days a week uh, for four-hour stints. You've really got to watch what you eat and, 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 and drink because obviously you, you can't get rid of it, so you're building up fluid all the time. Yeah, and, and you don't always feel fantastic. Like You don't feel like sometimes you just don't have the energy levels to, to you know, just have a, a normal life where you, you know, go, for, go for a ride on your bike or take the dog for a walk. Yeah, it's definitely changed. And the fact that you can't travel, you know, like you, you're pretty much stuck to the, the regime of dialysis and um, as much as you can book, you know, in different dialysis units, you really are pretty limited to, to where you can go. As I say before, you know, if we wanted to get in the car and go for a drive, like we went up to Lake Eyre, um, you know, we'd always be camping. But, yeah, you can't be away for too long. It was around this time that you start being able to work from home as well. Yeah, yeah, that was a, a big bonus. I'd, when my daughter started school, I, I started setting up um, a workshop and that was basically for, for, you know, the convenience of dropping her off at school and things. But in the end, it, kind of, it was a godsend because I can keep on working and just walk down the backyard and go to work where... Uh, yeah, I just couldn't go to Melbourne. Like I couldn't get up early and go get on the train and do that commute and then get home at, you know, 6.30 at night and things like that. So, yeah, that has definitely changed. And working from home is, is amazing. So uh, if anything good's come out of it, that's probably one thing. At what point does someone say it might be time to get you on the transplant list? I think if, if you're probably like my age and younger, I guess, it's just something that they 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 do, you know. You sort of get yourself on it as quickly as you can, just because you've the the quality of life uh, with a with a kidney is just so much better than yeah dialysis. And I, for a young person, it's a long haul to be on dialysis your whole life. So yeah, if you can get on that list and and hopefully something comes along, yeah, your your quality of life will jump dramatically. So you finally got on the transplant list at the start of 2020, I believe. Yep, I had a few things I had to do to get ready and a few little operations. And uh, yeah, and same thing, as long as you're, you're staying healthy, you should be fine to just stay on it and, and until such time as someone gives you a call and says you better, you better get down to Melbourne as quick as you can. Now, yours is an interesting case because I believe your father actually put his hand up and said, here, take one of my kidneys. Yeah, no, he did. That was his first first reaction. That was when I, because I didn't tell anyone for quite a while. I sort of had to had to get it into my head what was going on. And, and uh, he was away. He was up travelling um, up the top end of Australia and I'd been away for about six weeks. So I, I didn't want to tell him that I was starting dialysis because he'd just jump in the car and come home. So, um, yeah, I kept that to myself. And then when he got back or they got closer, I said, you know, this is what's going on. And he said, no, 
we'll sort something out, you know. Yeah, that was that was pretty amazing. But it hasn't hasn't panned out as as it's not like everything, it's not as easy as you think and and my concern was always for him, you know, I don't want us both to be on dialysis and uh say he's at a, a good time of his life where he's enjoying retirement and travelling around. But, uh he's he's still there in the background. He's fit enough to if if I got crook again. Um, so I had a blood infection and things were pretty dicey there for a while. And, yeah, so, you know, if something happened, uh, my dad's still there in the background. He sounds like a great bloke. Yeah, he is. Very generous. Now, usually when I do these interviews, the big happy finish is uh, that you got the call and you got the transplant and now life is great. But you're still waiting. How do you think life will be once you get that kidney? Yeah, it's sort of it's hard to imagine because you go through all these stages where you don't you don't want to overthink it, and um, so I don't put a, a lot of time in thinking about after. But uh, yeah, it would it it just be so different, like just just to be able to wake up and you don't you don't feel like you've I don't know had half a slab of beer and you feel groggy all the time and a bit bit weak and things like that. But yeah, just to have that normal existence where you've got the energy levels to do things and and just to be able to travel you know just to be able to and, and we're all with COVID rule being locked down but just traveling within your own country and you know school holidays saying oh well we'll jump in the car for two weeks and go somewhere and not even have to think about it just have to think about loading up the car and going yeah you just there's a lot of things where you just you don't always feel a hundred percent even with dialysis, it, it's, you still don't feel like you can run a marathon. Mate, it sounds like you're doing all the right things, and I really hope that one day we get to do a part two of this podcast where I get to ask you questions about getting the call and the process of racing to Melbourne and all that. But for now, all I can really do is ask you the question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. What would you say to someone who was thinking about or unsure about signing up to be an organ donor? I think, you know, we all go through the the process of thinking oh you know it's never going to happen to me and um yeah it, it it would you know to give someone else a kidney a lung a heart you know it's all it's a massive thing to do and uh you say it's very very generous and and we hope that that but that even if you put your name down to be a donor it never happens for you but you know maybe if it did you could help so many people and their lives, you know, instead of being, living in a little bit of misery, you can you can have a full, happy life, you know. So, yeah, it, it is it is something that we all need to, to think about, and uh, it will it will drastically change people's lives. Paul, I hope you get that call real soon, so you can get out and get holidaying with the family and live the life you want to. So I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. No, thank you. Two amazing stories from two men who just want to live a healthy life and spend time with their families. I hope after hearing these stories, you might go to donatelife.gov.au and sign up to be an organ donor and also talk to your family about your wishes. If you enjoyed the podcast, then give it a review or a rating, maybe even share it on your social media. I hope it swayed you to sign up to be an organ donor and I hope you'll make the decision to donate life.